From PRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Former Secretary of State John Kerry on Joe Biden's plan to build back better with climate-smart incentives. Building back from COVID-19 and from the position we find ourselves in will be hugely advantaged by building out a energy grid, by doing what we need to do to incentivize the shift to electric, to solar, to wind, to hydrogen. Also for coal miners with black lung disease, COVID-19 is especially challenging and dangerous. With debris and problems and stuff, it's just hard to walk around and breathe through the mask. It's like sucking in hot air, but I don't have no choice with the condition of my lungs and stuff. I can't take a chance. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRX and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. With control of the U.S. Senate hanging in the balance, Maine moderate Republican Susan Collins is facing a tough election to keep her seat for a fifth term. She's being challenged by Sarah Gideon, the current Democratic Speaker of the House in the Maine legislature. Maine is heavily dependent on a healthy environment for tourism, fisheries, farming, and forestry. For more on how climate change and the environment is influencing the Senate race in Maine, I'm joined now by Michael Shepard, politics editor of the Bangor Daily News. Thanks, Steve. So, Michael, for years, Susan Collins has had a strong environmental record as a Republican. There's been years that the League of Conservation Voters gave her 100 points. More recently, not so high. Why has there been a shift of climate environmental groups away from Susan Collins in this election cycle, do you think? Really, I think it's national politics, Steve. We've seen over the years, Susan Collins was an early supporter of you know, climate science. She was, in 2003, she voted for the Senate's really the first bill to try to reduce emissions. She's been sort of out in front of this issue for a long time. What's happening now, though, I think, is these environmental groups are seeing a Democratic candidate in Sarah Gideon who really has a shot at unseating Senator Collins. They just haven't had that in the past. So I think what they're seeing is these judicial nominations that have been really controversial, and they see Sarah Gideon as someone who's very reliable on that issue for them. So I think these environmental groups that have backed Collins in the past did that sort of out of a practical nature. Now they have someone they can They can maybe trust a little bit more, regardless of the policy differences, which are slimmer between these two candidates than you're typically used to seeing between Democrats and Republicans. Now, to what extent uh, is the national interest, because the Senate is in in balance here? Yeah. If Susan Collins were to lose, it would put Democrats one seat closer to, to gaining the majority in the Senate. Yeah, it's an amazing race here. We've been citing this number for a long time, and it's a little higher now, but We've seen $40 million in outside money, and the candidates themselves raised that much by June alone. And with much more money coming into the race, this is easily going to go over $100 million. It's going to be the most expensive race in Maine history. So this is clearly on the national radar. It's one of the key seats that that Democrats really need to flip the Senate. And it's a place where Republicans have, you know, maybe a candidate who can weather the storm a little better than some other incumbents, but she's still underwater here a little bit in a Democratic-leaning state. And, you know, that crossover popularity is largely gone. So, Michael, just lay out in broad strokes for me, how do Susan Collins and her challenger Sarah Gideon stack up from an environmental perspective? Susan Collins has supported lots of individual policies around climate that most environmental groups would believe in. 
She's tried to incentivize clean energy development. You know, she's been there on emissions reductions and, and things like that. Sarah Gideon has outlined kind of a consensus democratic platform on climate. It involves larger goals like getting to zero emissions by 2050 across the country. So she's relatively safe on the issue. She hasn't stuck her neck out to, to support the Green New Deal. She's sort of praised it for the energy that it's, that it's giving to, you know, sort of the climate movement, but she's not ready to go there. I think Susan Collins is more likely to offer sort of, you know, more piecemeal concrete steps. Sarah Gideon is looking to sort of drive the conversation going forward. So Mike, talk to me about some of the key environmental issues that Mainers uh, vote on. I know you've done some polling, I think, on, on Mainer attitudes towards the climate crisis. How do those break down? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Maine is concerned about climate change for the most part. And we see it in our lobster industry. There's a concern that, you know, lobsters are moving north. There's a concern about erosion on in some of our seaside towns. There's a lot of worry about the issue generally. We polled Mainers in August and we found that about 77% of people were either somewhat or very concerned about it. It actually breaks down in ways that are a little surprising. You see that when you say, how much is Maine impacted by climate change? There are about geez, it's, it's almost universal among Democrats. And Republicans, about 40% of Republicans say that Maine has either been impacted somewhat or a great deal by climate change. So it's something that it, it certainly breaks down along partisan lines, but it's not something that is as partisan as you may think. And I think that's sort of a testament to the universal appreciation for the environment that we have here in Maine. Tease apart for me for a moment the differences between Sarah Gideon and Susan Collins when it comes to their voting records on environmental issues. Yeah, I would say that Sarah Gideon has championed pro-solar bills in the legislature. She has supported these these sort of long-term goals that Governor Mills has gotten behind and are sort of driving the state-level climate change conversation. You look at Susan Collins' record, and if you're an environmentalist, there are maybe things that you're concerned about and things that you may support. For instance, she voted for the 2017 tax bill after trying to get a provision out that opened ANWR, the Alaskan Wildlife Refuge, to oil and gas drilling. She tried to get it out on an earlier vote and then ended up voting for the, the version that left it in. So that was that's something controversial that people are pointing to. But she's also supported a lot of one-off measures that would have addressed climate change in more targeted ways. So one of the things that's really interesting about this race, Mike, is that on the one hand, you have Susan Collins as a Republican back in 2010 offering a plan with Maria Cantwell, the Democrat from Washington State, for what was known as a cap and dividend way to address carbon that virtually all the money collected in the form of of a fee on carbon use would get rebated to consumers. And then in Maine, in the House, you have Sarah Gideon proposing essentially a carbon tax. So both of these folks have really stuck their necks out at times to say, let's put a price on carbon. Why and how should that matter to voters, do you think? I think it shows it shows the differences between them to a certain degree. The carbon tax was something that Governor Jana Mills, who's, you know, who's a Democrat and she's environmentally focused, that's something she what well, she didn't want to put on the table here. So it was very quickly killed in the main legislature and was just a partisan bill and really didn't have much of a prayer from the beginning. The Collins example you cited is is pretty interesting in that it also didn't go anywhere, but it was a pretty interesting design where 75% of the revenue collected would have gone to consumers in a direct rebate from these carbon credit sales that producers would pay. 
and the rest of it would go to clean energy development. So I've, I've actually talked to experts who said the Collins proposal is probably more progressive and effective, but they're not running on these plants right now. And Collins is campaigning against Gideon on the carbon tax, even though these two proposals would have done at the end of the day, similar things. They would have priced carbon in different ways, certainly, but similar designs. So these are things that they're both running away from them to a certain degree. Susan Collins isn't saying whether she'd support that design that she supported back then. And Sarah Gideon saying, well, I don't support any carbon tax on the federal level. So it's not something they're racing toward in this election, but it's going to be something up here. It's a cold state. People are still heavily relying on heating oil. It's something that Republicans have used against past candidates with varying degrees of success, of course. But, you know, it's going to be something people are watching up here for sure, how that would fall in consumers. The national situation with the competition between former Vice President Biden and the present president, Mr. Mm -hmm. Trump, seems to be the big focus here. How do these two candidates, how do voters resonate with them on the national ticket situation? Climate itself is not the biggest issue in this race for the voters. It, it certainly is for, you know, perhaps Democratic voters who have ranked this about as high as healthcare in some of the surveys that we've done of our readers. But it's sort of baked into all these really controversial elements that made this a campaign. Ten years ago, when I started doing this, you know, I wouldn't have thought Senator Collins would be in a re-election fight here in 2020. But here she is. This is a person who has, you know, pulled it. 70% approval ratings of the past. She's She's been very popular for a long time. So what has turned this into a race is was the Kavanaugh vote in 2018. And now we have another Supreme Court nomination fight on our hands. And that's another, that's a whole different issue. But I think you see the climate issue sort of being wrapped in to that larger judicial nomination issue. And that's really, that's really what the momentum in this race is sort of, has sort of revolved around. Michael Shepard is a politics editor of the Bangor Daily News in Bangor, Maine. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you, Steve. In this half of the world, the fall migration season for birds is fully upon us as they congregate and get ready to fly south for the winter. As Bird Notes' Michael Stein reports, for some birds, this is also a time for socializing. Once nesting season ends, these violet-green swallows seem to know it's time to party. They usually nest as single pairs in cavities or nesting boxes. But now, they gather on electrical wires by the dozens in the western United States, chattering away as part of their pre-migration networking. They're not alone. Tree swallows often join the violet greens before they all begin their southbound migration to Mexico and Central America. Cliff swallows may gather the same way, and so will barn swallows, not just in North America, but across Europe and into China, too. Birds flock for protection. The more eyes watching, the greater the chance of noticing predators and the harder it is for predators to single out any one bird. Also, birds flock to share information about where to find food. Migrating by day, swallows forage for insects as they move farther south. When they return in the spring, you won't see them sitting around on telephone wires. In spring, it's all business, as the swallows start selecting their sites and building their nests. They'll save all that socializing for the fall. 
I'm Michael Stein. For photos, migrate over to the Living on Earth website, LOE.org. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. Time now to talk to Peter Dykstra. He's on the line from Atlanta, Georgia, and he's an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. And Peter, how you doing? And let's talk about that debate between Vice President Biden and President Trump the other day. Well, yeah, about 100 million people tuned in, including myself. And I kind of thought I was wasting my time listening for a full hour to interruptions and crosstalk largely from the president, but certainly from both men. And about an hour in, the moderator, Chris Wallace of Fox News, not only asked a question that the debaters answered, but he asked a question about climate change. It's been a while since we've heard that in presidential debates. Twelve years to be exact, three campaigns ago with the late Senator John McCain and then-Senator Barack Obama running against each other since then. Not a word in the final presidential debates about climate. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, a moderator asks a reasonable question about climate. Let's take a listen now first to Chris Wallace's question to the president. He tied climate with the fires in California. You believe that, that human pollution, gas, greenhouse gas emissions contributes to the global warming of this planet? I think planet? a lot of things do, but I think to an extent, yes. I think to an extent, yes. But I also think we have to do better management of our forests. And then the moderator turned to former Vice President Joe Biden. You propose $2 trillion in green jobs. You talk about new limits on fracking, ending the use of fossil fuels to generate electricity by 2035, and zero net emission of greenhouse gases by 2050. The president says a lot of these things would tank the economy and cost millions of jobs. He's absolutely wrong, number one. Number two, if in fact, when, when our, during our administration, the Recovery Act, I was able to, I was in charge, able to bring down the cost of renewable energy to cheaper than or as cheap as coal and gas and oil. It appeared to me, and I don't know what you think, Peter, but it appeared to me that neither candidate had actually prepared to answer such a question. Uh, no, particularly the president is not a guy who's known for doing his homework on things. And this topic, uh, climate and the environment, was not one that was listed on Chris Wallace's chosen topics for the first debate. We weren't sure whether it was going to be mentioned at all in any of the three scheduled debates, but certainly not this one. So let's talk about the actual answers that these two candidates gave. What did you make of Mr. Trump's response? Uh, the president gave a number that was way out in space of $100 trillion. Not $2 billion or $20 billion, as you said. I'm it's $100 trillion. I immediately hearken back to Dr. Evil in Austin Powers 3 with similar numbers about a ransom money to not destroy the earth. Wait, that's exactly the line that the president used. 
that's what the president used. And um, he was talking about a Democratic Party plan, one that Joe Biden, to begin with, was nowhere near endorsing in the first place. Talking about the Green New Deal put forward by progressives in the House and Senate on the Democratic side. Now, how did you rate what uh, former Vice President Biden said? He, first of all, cast some distance between the Green New Deal plan and his own, which uh, would be a lot less costly and, according to Biden, would generate jobs and generate new portions of our economy that would more than make up for the cost, in addition to making a great impact on the U.S. impact to climate change. What did you make of Biden not really criticizing uh, President Trump on the climate and especially some of his appointees related to climate protection? Well, there were things within the Biden plan that don't meet some of the farther reaching things on the progressive end of the party, but they go way beyond the nearly nothing that's been proposed on the Republican side from President Trump and others, including his heads of EPA and the Interior Department, who are former lobbyists, respectively, for the coal industry and the oil industry, something that uh, if he were better prepared, Joe Biden would have made uh, some hay by uh, pointing out. Peter, I came away wondering if somebody wasn't paying a lot of attention to climate change and they were among the 100 million or so Americans that perhaps tuned into this, that they didn't really get much of an education about climate in this discussion. Uh, No, it's still not an issue that is in vogue not among the Washington press corps, one that doesn't seem to have sunk in with either political party, which to me is a shame because not only is it a vital issue, but it's one where you can find the greatest disparity between what the Republicans are looking for and what the Democrats say they're looking for. Well, thanks, Peter. Usually, you know, we we take a moment to look back in history. What would you like to point out today? Yeah, two very significant things. That happened a day apart 50 years ago on October 2nd. The Environmental Protection Agency came into being. And a day later, on October 3rd, 1970, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, came into being. The two agencies that have arguably the most substantial impact on our Earth, our climate, and our oceans. Thanks, Peter. Peter Dykstra is an editor with Environmental Health News at chn.org and dailyclimate.org. We'll talk to you again real soon. All right, Steve, and happy anniversary to EPA and NOAA. And there's more on these stories at the Living on Earth website, loe.org. During this presidential campaign, we've invited Joe Biden and Donald Trump to come on the show or send a surrogate to discuss their positions on climate change. The Trump campaign has yet to respond to repeated requests, but John Kerry, former Secretary of State, and himself a Democratic nominee for president in 2004, joins us now on behalf of the Biden campaign. Along with New York Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Secretary Kerry co-chaired the Biden-Sanders Climate Unity Task Force. This task force crafted a $2 trillion climate plan for Biden, which aims to achieve a 100% clean energy economy and net zero emissions no later than mid-century. Welcome back to Living on Earth, Secretary Kerry. Happy to be with you. Thanks for having me. 
Secretary Kerry, how important do you consider Joe Biden's $2 trillion climate change plan is to the campaign as a whole? Critical. Absolutely critical. Because when he is elected, he is going to be facing the biggest economic crisis we've had since Franklin Roosevelt in 1932. I think the vice president knows that. So building back from COVID-19 and from the position we find ourselves in will be hugely advantaged by building out a energy grid, by doing what we need to do to incentivize the shift to electric, to solar, to wind, to hydrogen. There are huge options available to us that will kick the economy into gear. And the vice president is deadly serious about getting government to focus on this, but he doesn't view it as the whole solution. The private sector has got to step up. Innovation, development, research, infrastructure, those are the key elements. And they happen to be the key elements of recovery, too. How excited are you about this? Uh, You've been concerned about the climate for decades, literally. How does the the Biden plan compare to your vision of what you think needs to be done? I think it's the best detailed climate plan, climate crisis agenda that has been put forward by any presidential candidate to date. And I'm extremely excited about it because I see in it leadership restored for America on an international basis. I see in it are dealing with a whole bunch of Americans who've been on the wrong end of environmental decisions for a long period of time. You look at the problem in the Bronx, for instance, of environmentally induced asthma, the biggest cause of children being hospitalized in America in the summer is environmentally induced asthma. And part of it is because diesel trucks get routed through communities that don't have the political power to resist, more often than not minority communities. And so he'll be addressing a whole group of concerns for the average citizen in our country that can be addressed through a combined economic, government, private sector partnership. I mean, Joe Biden is talking not just about $2 trillion for infrastructure and development, but he's going to make sure we have carbon-free power by the year 2035. That's an ambitious but achievable target. And he's going to work with the power companies and utilities and others to achieve that. He's going to have uh, 500 million solar panels that are going to be deployed during the course of uh, five years. Transition of buses from internal combustion engine to electric. I mean, there are many, many different things we can do. And nobody, none of your listeners, I hope, We'll sit there and say, well, wait a minute, that, that's, that's going to hurt the economy. That's going to cost me my job. No, 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 it's not. It's going to, in fact, lower the price of goods over time. It's going to provide tens of millions of jobs in our country alone. And it is going to provide the ability to be able to have better quality of life because there'll be less particulates in the air, less emissions, which are pollution. Emissions is too nice a word for pollution. People don't want to breathe dirty air and drink, you know, polluted water. And the reality is that that's what we've been doing for years because we haven't been paying attention. Right now, I I think it's fair to say that a lot of environmental activists are very concerned about the general election, want to see Vice President Biden elected. But the day after he takes office, they're going to look at your climate plan, which has fracking, Uh, nuclear power, carbon capture and storage, things that some environmental activists have said over the years are steps backwards instead of forwards. Steve, it leaves the possibility of nuclear power. It doesn't have nuclear power. It just doesn't eliminate it. 
And if the next generation of modular power plants can prove they are economical and they solve the problems of meltdown and waste, they may earn themselves a place at the table. What Joe is doing is not eliminating automatically things because it is zero emissions. If somebody comes up with a way of doing it, safe, sound, deliverable, priced right, I think a lot of people would embrace it. We have 20% of our power today in America is nuclear. 70% of France's power is nuclear. So I think it's a question of not eliminating. So his first choice is solar, wind, renewables, alternative, move in a clean direction. Now on the fracking, what he has said is on existing fracking that is in private land, he's not going to interfere with the already existing levels, partly because we need the natural gas as a transition fuel as we move into the new technologies. And we can't just cut it off today or tomorrow. And I think reasonable people understand that. So we have to have this transition period, but we have to do it fast enough that we're not cutting our throats while we're in the sort of delay period. We've got to move rapidly. That's what Joe Biden understands. But what about more infrastructure for, for natural gas, for fracking? So that's dangerous. I'm not for building up. I personally would, would not want to see us build a whole lot of new infrastructure because then as you make the transition, the pressures will come as they automatically do politically. Hey, you know, we can't transition our jobs, et cetera, number one. And number two, you'll have what you call stranded assets, which the economy doesn't want to do. I mean, you want to try to minimize that exposure. So we were doing it, but people need to embrace the possibilities of transitioning and providing many more new jobs, better jobs that actually help us solve this crisis. To what extent does the Biden climate plan look at both forestry here in the United States, but perhaps more importantly, uh, at forests around the world as a way to cope with the climate emergency? The reality is the Biden plan is focused on agriculture, regenerative agriculture. It's focused on building out what we call sinks. Sinks are those things or places where carbon dioxide gets consumed. The ocean is a sink. Carbon dioxide, maybe 50-60% of our heat and carbon goes into the ocean. It's a great storage center. Well, so is the rainforest in the Amazon. And Joe Biden has called for practices by other countries that are going to respect the international goals here of sustainability. And sustainability requires us to protect those forests. But his largest priority will remain getting all nations, particularly developed nations, back to and beyond the Paris Agreement. I had the privilege of leading our negotiations in Paris, and I can tell you that what helped make that happen was bringing China to the table, working with India, working with Australia, Saudi Arabia, Brazil, other countries. We exercised, I think, strong diplomacy, strong leadership. In the end, 196 countries signed on to that agreement. Only Donald Trump, he's the only president in the whole world who has pulled out of the Paris Agreement. And he has done so without any scientific rationale. He's done so, in fact, lying to the American people about the burden that it put on America, when in fact, the program that we adopted was written by Americans, for Americans, including Fortune 500 companies, big oil, they were all at the table, The largest companies in America helped to write our plan, and it does not place a burden on America. It places before us a huge opportunity.
The other day, uh, China announced a goal of going carbon neutral by 2060. How could a new administration rebuild the U.S.-China relationship to lead the world on setting strong climate targets? Because 2060 is necessary, but not sufficient, I would think. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I welcome the fact that they've taken awareness of it and that they've targeted 2060, but that doesn't work. It doesn't work for the rest of the world. China is about to bring online some 21 gigatons of coal-fired power. That doesn't work for us. It doesn't work for the whole world. It may work for China in short term, but it's not even going to work for China in the long term. We worked very effectively with China during the Obama-Biden administration. And Joe Biden has a very strong relationship with President Xi. He knows how to be tough, but he also knows how to get things done. Unlike President Trump, who hasn't gotten anything done with that except to raise the decibels and wind up making food products much more expensive for American farmers and uh, making those, those farmers' lives quite difficult over the last three years. Let me ask you about a coalition that you called World War Zero just a couple of months before the coronavirus pandemic hit. Remind me of World War Zero's mission and how the pandemic has now reshaped your on-the-ground work. World War Zero is a group that uh, we brought together on a bipartisan basis. I was working with former Republican Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, with former Governor Christy Todd Whitman of New Jersey, with former Defense Secretaries, Senators Bill Cohen and Chuck Hagel. A whole bunch of people came together saying, we've got to talk differently about climate change, we can't, crisis. We, we can't be polarized and we can't let actions we know we need to take be prevented because we can't build a majority for this. So we came together with a view to trying to help people realize as unlikely allies, I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger, John Kerry, these folks, they're unlikely allies, but they are allies on this climate crisis. And they came together to urge people to vote. We're not telling people how, but we're trying to urge people that Climate crisis is worth finding the person that you think is going to do something about it. And we're asking you to vote for that person. So it's world, war is zero. It's world because the whole world has to be at the table involved in this. It's war because, unfortunately, some people have decided to declare war on science, war on facts, war on evidence. And we're going to push back against that. And it's zero because zero is the target figure we must reach by 2050. We have to have a net zero carbon economy. And frankly, I think sooner than that. And we've had many, many, many uh, digital conversations with people. We've had incredible learning sessions where we've had different scientists. We had a, a glaciologist the other day talking about what's happening to Greenland and, and Antarctica. And we're trying to help inform people so they can go out and make an informed vote. But the key, the key is this. In uh, 2016, when Trump was elected, only 55.6% of eligible Americans decided to go vote. That's horrible in a democracy. And the truth is that of the young people, 18 to 25, only 19% went to vote. So if we're going to win our future, if we're going to make our democracy work, you got to vote. Vote climate and vote for people, whatever party or walk of life they're in, who are going to help us address this crisis. John Kerry is former Secretary of State and co-chair of uh, candidate Joe Biden's Climate Task Force. 
Thanks so much for taking the time with us today, Mr. Secretary. My honor to be with you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, beavers. They're back in England after being eradicated some 400 years ago. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Climate change is a major threat to planetary health, and the people who work in the extraction of fossil fuels face even more risks to personal health. Consider the coal miners who get black lung disease over years of working in the mines. It's incurable, and now during this time of the coronavirus pandemic, black lung disease patients are especially vulnerable. Caitlin Tan of West Virginia Public Radio has this report from the coal fields. Jerry Coleman worked as a coal miner for 37 years, mostly underground near Cabin Creek, West Virginia, a third-generation miner. But at 68 years old, he has complicated black lung disease, meaning his lungs are permanently and irreversibly scarred by coal dust. Black lung, it doesn't get better. It gets worse. Black lung is, in a way, a death sentence. The lungs gradually deteriorate until the person can no longer breathe. And in the middle of a pandemic, it's only more complicated, Coleman says. He's also the president for the Kanawha County Black Lung Association. you got to wear a mask, and with your breathing problems and stuff, it's just hard to walk around and breathe through the mask. It's like sucking in hot air, but I don't have no choice. You know, with the condition of my lungs and stuff. I can't take a chance. COVID-19 is classified as a respiratory virus. It can affect and even be deadly to the healthiest of people. But the most vulnerable are those with high-risk conditions, such as lung disease and old age, which represent much of West Virginia's former coal miner population. Each different lung disease kind of takes away some of your lung function. That's Carl Wernz, an occupational medical specialist who gives black lung exams, a crucial step to apply for federal black lung benefits. So if you have black lung, that's going to take away some lung function. So that person, if they get COVID that bothers their lungs, they're going to run out of usable lung much faster than somebody who starts out with healthy lungs. Since the pandemic began, Wernz says black lung exams were put on hold at the clinic he works at in Cabin Creek. Exams slowly resumed in July, but at half capacity. Typically, he sees six to eight patients a day, but with new COVID protocols, Wernz says he now sees three to four, creating a backlog of patients waiting for their black lung exam. The longer you wait to do the testing and show that they really have the disease, the longer it is until they can get benefit, including you know, potentially medical care if they don't have some other way to pay for their breathing care. Federal black lung benefits include monthly payments and medical coverage for lung treatment, treatment that's expensive, Jerry Coleman says. Remember, he's the former coal miner with black lung. The fight for benefits can be long even without a pandemic. Coleman says he fought for seven years to receive his benefits. Until you get awarded Anything that pertains to your breathing, you have to pay for everything. And you're, you're not going to 
you'll spend exactly what you have to spend because you don't have the money to waste. And it's shame to say, but that's that's the way it is. And with COVID severely limiting the number of patients who can come in for their black lung exams, the wait to get benefits keeps growing for some minors. Mickey Petrie is 63 years old, and he worked in the coal mines much of his life. And although he's been diagnosed with black lung, he's been fighting for his federal benefits for three years. And now with a pandemic that has politicians scrambling, Petrie says everything is on hold. But, you know, the entire focus is on a battle going on up in, you know, D.C. Very little attention being paid to anything else. In fact, the coal excise tax, which is the primary money for the Black Lung Disability Trust Fund, is set to expire at the end of this year, meaning funds for Black Lung benefits could dry up quickly. And this issue is a priority for Black Lung Associations, says Coleman. He and other members from local associations went to D.C. last year and helped secure the funding through 2020. But with COVID, Coleman says it's harder for the associations to hold meetings and to advocate for the renewal of the legislation. Because our voice is what's got to be heard. You know, if we don't speak out, it's not going to be, it's going to be forgotten. In the meantime, things are a lot less social for those with black lung disease. Coleman says he spent most of his spring and summer at home trying to social distance. And Petri says not being able to go to the monthly Black Lung Association meetings takes a toll mentally. Many of the members are his neighbors, friends, or former co-workers. There's a therapeutic aspect. But now, even going to the store is a risk, Petri says. I don't have a, I don't have a lot of tolerance for people now. And there's so many people that think that wearing a mask is a joke. People have the right to their opinion, but we can't afford to to say that it's not real. You know, and when they infringe upon our protection, you know, I get really upset. Petri says he doesn't know what the future holds for him as someone with black lung disease during a pandemic. But he's making do with what he has. Mowing the lawn, grilling meat on his back porch, and occasionally putting on a mask and getting a hot chicken sandwich from Chick-fil-A. That report from West Virginia Public Radio's Caitlin Tan. The plains of southern Africa are famous for its wildlife, elephants, buffalo, and hippo, to name a few. Living on Earth's Explorer and Residence, Mark Seth Lender shares this story of a close encounter with some of the most dangerous. Not the thing you want to hear in an arrows. Hippos on the right! Valerie and me, we dig in double stroke, driving up against the bank so hard there's dirt and leaves and rocks falling into the canoe, listing to 20 degrees, partway on land and too much of the rest of us in the river. While the hippos continue straight toward us. Not because they want to get us, but because they have a point to make. This river is my land. It isn't your land. If I were you, I'd scram for the highlands. When it looks like we are going to make it, and just in the nick of time, there on the bank above and only a few strokes away is an extended family of Cape Buffalo, 
staring down, and not in a friendly way. The bulls are close, enormous, solid as hardwood, and they are scowling, their horns lowered, heads turned in unison to look across their shoulders at us. Point being the same one the hippos made. Get your faces out of here. And you could have water skied behind our canoe that morning on the Zambezi. Ten days later, we are on foot in Wangi with Albert Parrott's eye, one of the best guides we have ever had on any continent. And he says, in a marvelously normal tone of voice, Folks, there's danger behind us. This time, elephants. They don't have it in for us, not like the hippos did. But they are thirsty and in a hurry, thinking only about reaching the nearby waterhole, and we are standing in the way. And in front of us, Cape Buffalo. An entire bachelor herd, 50 at least, maybe 60. They stop and stare the way the first ones did, over their shoulders, heads lowered, Mack trucks on hooves, and nothing but flat ground between them and us. We crowd so close together we are practically in the same set of boots. And instead of leading us to safety, not that there is anywhere safe to go, Albert grabs his rifle in both hands, raises it over his head, uh, like in the movies when the platoon is about to ford a stream that everyone knows is probably mined, and smiles and says, We can't just leave without saying hello and he runs straight toward them. And what the hell are we going to do except follow? Into the whirlwind. To our amazement, the herd parts. Like Albert is Moses, and they are the Red Sea, and they run away. And stop, and look, a lot less sure of themselves this time, they think I have a bigger set of horns, Albert says, meaning the rifle. And they find that very scary. And takes another run at them. How frequently in life we fear when there is no need and ignore what should scare us. That's Living on Earth, Explorer in Residence, Mark Seth Lender. The Eurasian beaver is native to the British Isles, but was hunted to extinction some 400 years ago. But not long ago, a beaver family mysteriously turned up on a river in Devon, England, prompting concerns about disease and flooding from beaver dams. Some scientists were able to persuade the UK government to allow the beavers to stay as part of a reintroduction pilot plan, and recently confirmed that it's working. Professor Richard Brazier is a hydrologist at the University of Exeter and spoke with Living on Earth's Jenny Doring. So it sounds like these beavers are here to stay. What made this trial a success? Yeah, that's correct. The government has allowed the animals to remain, not just remain, actually, but also to expand. We learn a multitude of different things in this really intensively farmed lowland catchment setting. We learned that the beaver dams could reduce the impact of flooding downstream. We learned that the dams could 
filter pollutants out of the water. And we learned, of course, that the animals in bringing water and creating wetlands to these otherwise dry and drained landscapes, that they bring more life so that they bring biodiversity back. So there's a whole range of uh, key findings which, on balance, certainly demonstrate that the benefits of having beavers back in this landscape far outweigh the costs associated with managing them. Right. I mean, I know that beavers have been gone from England for almost or, or more than 500 years. So I'm wondering, what do you think the landscape has lost in all of those centuries of no beavers on rivers? Well, it's lost a very efficient water resource manager in the beaver, and therefore it's lost a lot of water. And in fact, for the last few months, we have pretty dry weather conditions at this time of year. And during those times, a lot of our small streams and tributaries, agricultural ditches, they just run dry. There's very little water left in the soil. There's very little water recharging our groundwater aquifers. There's very low base flow in our streams and rivers. And of course, when you lose that water, you tend to lose all the aquatic life, all the aquatic ecology that depends upon it. So in bringing the beavers back, and now there's 15 colonies, 15 family groups of these animals in the River Otter, we're seeing water coming back into the what were wetlands, these low low valley floodplains. And it's an amazing thing to see because the, the landscape transforms even in just a few years into a wetland, wildlife-rich, water-resource-full landscape again. Wow. So what does the river or the streams themselves, what do they look like once beavers move in and start building their dams? How do they change? Well, yeah, they look very different. I mean, we tend to, in fact, for hundreds of years, we've we've straightened our streams and rivers. We've deepened them. We've even dredged them. And, you know, we've done so to accelerate the drainage of water off our farmland. When the beavers come back in, of course, they, they're well known for building dams. And so they start to push the water sideways back onto floodplains. They start to put meanders back into our streams and rivers. They start to uh, coppice the trees like willow, sallow, hazel. And so we get abundant vegetation flourishing again. They bring big trees down and open up the uh, gaps in the canopy so that we've then got more light coming down to the understory, the plants that grow near ground level. And what they bring, therefore, is variability. Instead of straight, over deep and narrow channels, we get a whole range of different channel shapes and all the associated return of vegetation with that variability. So yeah, that's something we as humans managed out of the landscape, but we're finding that beavers bring it back very quickly. And how much have these beavers on the River Otter in the Devon area, how much have they cleaned up the water? Unfortunately, most of the lowland streams and rivers in England, they hold a fine drape, a fine layer of sediment above the, the bed of the stream, which is soil that's left our agricultural fields. When the beavers build dams, they capture that soil. And so immediately downstream for tens of metres, you see these beautiful clean gravels. And water flowing through those gravels is well oxygenated because it's not full of fine sediment. Those clean gravels are so critical as spawning grounds for salmon and sea trout. And yet they're largely absent in many of our streams and rivers. Mm. It sounds just beautiful and maybe a great place to swim, I don't know, on a hot day. Oh, for sure. In fact, funnily enough, the first time I um, came across beavers was actually in 
southern Arizona down near to Nogales in the San Pedro River. And I went swimming in beaver ponds because that was pretty much the only place on that San Pedro River in the hot summer that held any water. So that's 20 years ago now. That's maybe another story, but it, it, it just shows you it, that's a semi-arid desert, of course, the Sonoran Desert. And when you get beavers, even in places like that, they hold water, which, yeah, you can use for bathing for sure. And why might beavers be important from an environmental health perspective? Well, the quality of our water is pretty fundamental to life. I mean, most rivers in the UK, water is abstracted from them for drinking water purposes. We then spend a lot of money treating that water to get it into a potable state. And, you know, therefore, if beaver dams in particular can purify the water from a human health point of view, it's in better condition for drinking. It still needs to be treated, of course, but it can be less costly to treat that water if it's cleaner. So before we go, can you share your favorite fun fact about beavers? Favorite fun fact? Um, that's a good one. Probably the way in which the, the female, the adult female, treats the kits, the beaver young, like children, is, is an amazing thing to see. Her hands, if you see her up close, they manipulate these young sticks and shoots for the young beavers, just like humans. They basically get treated like a little gang of unruly children, much like my own children, I should say, running around, bouncing off each other, being shepherded around by the mother. They really are like a little family. And so, yeah, I guess that's a neat thing to see. Professor Richard Brazier, a hydrologist at the University of Exeter, speaking with Living on Earth's Jenny Doring. Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Paloma Beltran, Jenny Doring, Jay Feinstein, Leah Jablow, Don Lyman, Isaac Merson, Aaron Mock, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, Casey Troost, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Learishteen composed our themes. Special thanks this week to Destination Wildlife. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth, and you can find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. PR.